0: (laughs) All right, here we are. Before we dive into our surprise questions today, and before we talk about how the internet is watching, let's read (laughs) some more about less. Ramesh, this this is where we do, we have a little article. It's a little jump-off point for us to discuss something that is in the cultural zeitgeist right now. And this article is from the BBC, and the title of it is smartphone addiction young people panicky when denied mobile phones Mm. we'll put a link to this in the show notes but it goes a little something like this almost a quarter of young people are so dependent on their smartphones that it becomes like an addiction suggests research by psychiatrists the study from king's college london says such addictive behavior means that people become quote panicky or quote Mm. upset if they are denied constant access. Now, mm. I'm sure you, re- you you recognize this too, yeah. right? Like, yeah. if you leave the house without your phone, there is the moment, moment the twinge of panic. Yeah. Even if it subsides, that can't be healthy for us. And also, there's the, the twin panic of constantly reaching for the phone, checking for the phone, the phantom vibrations of the phone. Technology has completely shaped us in a way. Mm -hmm. Now, it it goes on to say, uh, the study warns that such addictions have, quote, serious consequences for mental health. The research published by BMC Psychiatry analyzed 41 studies involving 42,000 young people in an investigation into problematic smartphone usage. The study found 23% had behavior that was consistent with an addiction, such as anxiety over not being able to use their phone, not being able to moderate the time spent, and using mobile so much that it was detrimental to other activities. Hmm. Such addictive behavior could be linked to other problems, says the study, such as, uh, sh- such as stress, a depressed mood, lack of sleep, and reduced achievement in school are you seeing any of that with your students
1: yeah I mean my students are they, they understand that this is that this is a uh, like an addiction that this is uh, an anxiety producing situation but they like me you know like most of us find it very difficult to be without these things and part of it is not just our fault. Like, I don't want to shame or blame any of us, you know, even though we talked about digital literacy, some mindfulness, some boundaries, some playfulness, right? We've already talked about those things. Um, But I really want to, I really want us to understand that the phone is not a phone, right? The phone is a computer. It's your TV. It's your radio. It's everything. Everything is mediated through these phones, right? So that's part of why we are so Tethered to them. I mean think about the phone almost as a prosthesis, you know, like a like an appendage, right?
0: I heard someone at Google call it the 79th organ. Wow. God help me. (laughs) Yeah, okay So,
1: you know, the problem is is unlike our other organs. It's not biologically determined It's not built upon uh, an organic relationship with our other organs or our our body Mm -hmm. It's a prosthesis built by someone else for their own aims that remain largely mysterious to us, mm. right? So yeah, there's no, the, the, the study you're referring to is, is pretty consistent with all the research I've read about the human relationship to the phone. You know, I think, I think what we again have to do is really understand what does or does not work, right? Like our nervous systems are such, where it's very difficult for human beings to pay attention or process things and not get fried if we're multitasking. Mm-hmm. And we're all multitasking because the phones, again, are designed for that multitasking. And when we're multitasking, it's very difficult to be present. It's very difficult to be present, mm-hmm. which can you know, be a very, very quick shift from being overstimulated to being overwhelmed and disoriented. So, you know, I, in Beyond the Valley, I not only talk about those sentient issues, those relational issues, those psychological issues, but I also talk about what that means at scale. Hmm. What that means at scale, when billions of people, right, there are about 8 billion people in the world, about 6 billion of those people have smartphones of different kinds. I mean, maybe 5 to 6 billion. And, And that's the way in which most people across the planet access the Internet. The place where the Internet's most rapidly expanding is the continent of Africa, which is also the youngest continent in the world. And it's the place where there, these transformations, I, and a lot of field work I did for the book was in across different parts of the Global South. So interesting to see that. Hmm. And what we really need to do is figure out ways and maybe it's not just the companies, maybe it's entrepreneurs, maybe it's governments, maybe it's civil society organizations, maybe it's activists, make sure that these technologies are functioning in a way that support the cultural value systems that we already have. You know, one thing we know from many different cultures, many different communities that we all come from, we all have friends in different tribes in a sense, uh, is there different ways of, of kind of processing the world, right, like mm-hmm. so some communities, for example, I'm South Indian, we have we follow very particular Rituals and the, the rituals are meant to design for like the social health of the community. Whether it's prayer, whether it's meditation, you know these kinds of things. You know, yeah. like and so like let's make sure that humans drive technology and our relationship to it. And humans, not just in a global sense, but humans in our in our as a part of our families and
2: our tribes and our communities. Yeah. So that's part of what I think. Also, instead we are we are gamifying. Uh, technology right now and when you gamify it I mean I saw a study where it talks about how the cell phone is very similar to someone on a slot machine exactly you pull the lever what am I gonna get what am I gonna get oh bing bing yeah Yeah. and then all of a sudden you get a bing bing and you're like oh there it is and then you get that dopamine release so no wonder it's causing depression especially in kids You, you are from a young age which I can only imagine. Like, I think you and Bex do a really good job with Ella and technology to the extent where I have seen Ella, like when Mariah, and I have babysat Ella. She's very good at self-regulating her, her wow. YouTube time. But, but, I mean, it's... I think that that's an exception not the rule because i see a lot of times on airplanes and in waiting rooms it's like the kid is just like enamored so from a very young age you're getting a kid hooked on technology and then when you take it away you're taking away that dopamine i mean it's just like any other drug if you take the drug away you're going to have this this valley of depression uh until you can figure out how to get you know that dopamine hit back because dopamine is important we were talking about this before we even started report uh, recording this like the the dopamine is important for our survival but uh, when we overuse that dopamine system it, it can it cuts it just creates all kinds of problems. Our
1: youngest generation is actually the most progressive generation. They are awesome they are also so from really like such a young age right gen z and younger they they there's they're, you know the world they were born into is a world where uh, mobile phones are ubiquitous right mm-hmm. and so you know and the phones are designed for again play you know opt gamifying you know mm-hmm. optimizing a- attention and addiction and dopamine so it's very difficult to for them to kind of concurrently be who they are outside of phones that are essentially natural for Mm. them. And the thing is, when I'm talking about these issues at scale, we already talked about the political polarization that can occur. We already talked about the economic disenfranchisement that can occur through automated systems, replacing workers, the gig economy, and so on. You know, all this data fueling a few executives and investors at the cost of everybody else. Mm. And another big issue is the environmental impact of all this. So I just want to Mm. flag that and put that out there in case you guys want to
2: talk. No, that's that's a great point. Actually, someone was at our this kid he was 17 maybe 16 years old he was in high school and he's like I'm having a really hard time because you know I really like this idea of living deliberate and, 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 and living with less and, and you know not just spending my whole time consuming he said however I am a creator and like I really look forward to when I graduate high school I want to go to engineering school and I want to create and he was like what do you suggest like how, like what, what do I go out there and put out into the world and the first thing I thought of I was like if you can come up with a biodegradable cell phone so rad like that would change the entire world just yeah. a biodegradable cell phone Cell phone on both sides of the pipeline there's
1: an extraction and damage to our planet that occur with these phones first of all the phones are designed to die it's a str- it's a branding strategy it's, a, oh, it's yeah. a it's a design strategy it's called planned obsolescence Damn. apple has admitted it mm-hmm. um, who, who they just cr- got fined for it Exactly. Yeah. Second, you can't repair phones in this country. The right to repair is illegal. In fact, Eric Lundgren, who I write about in Beyond the Valley, amazing guy, managed to hire, I believe, over a hundred people right here in Chatsworth. You know, he had basically been dumpster diving—not not literally, but like going into landfills where you know just dis- devices were broken like computers were broken repairing them re- you know refurbishing them uh-huh. installing windows on them and selling them selling them at a dramatically reduced price mm-hmm. managed to hire tons of people he has a felony conviction going to jail for oh, over 30 years the judge said you're a remarkable person you're a hero and I'm convicting you and I'm sentencing wow. you for over 30 years this is That's illegal This is illegal. The minerals that we use in all of our phones involve lithium, which is pulled out of Bolivian mines. I used to do my field work in Bolivia. And coltan, which is in every digitally mediated device. Uh, And that comes from Congolese mines in the Congo and in in, in Central Africa. These are mines that are owned by Chinese companies. I've Mm. literally tried to break into some, not break into, walk into some mines and got kicked out a few times when I was in the Congo. Mm, So like this is, so the extraction from the planet that shapes this so-called digital revolution is actually very material, it's very territorial and it's very place-based. And then when these phones are designed to die, where do they go? You know, that's something we don't even think about. What about the the energy consumption associated with the cloud or Bitcoin mining for like the blockchain space? So these are all, we we tend again to externalize the costs and make them invisible until they like wreak havoc on us. As we well, now, and they
0: are they are quite literally invisible. When you're talking about the cloud, they're invisible to us. All I see is this nice little s- s- slim cube that's in my pocket, and it it's uh, it allows me to access a- everything. I don't think about. And I think of the cloud like it's just this imaginary fairy dust. Mm. But really, we're talking about server farms for many miles, whether it's in Utah or Northern California or somewhere Iceland, else, Iceland,
1: Scandinavia. Because they, because of the the weather, the temperature allows these things to not, you know, wow. fry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a
0: lot of Facebook server farms
1: are up there. Yeah, you're right, man. You're yeah. right. And yeah. so
0: we don't even think about it, yeah. but there are all these these. Additional costs they go way beyond the price tag of the smartphone or the data plan And that's a
1: big part of what I'm writing about in Beyond the Valley is that we don't often think in this country And it's not just about tech about the externalities, right? So they're like hey a company is trying to you know create more and more efficient, you know more greater and greater efficiency But then ends up polluting a river, you know or or like but but actually thinking about the externalities of an economic transaction is very important in designing the transaction itself. So like, if you, it, it, I this is a bit of a step away, but I'll just say this very quickly. People are interested in buying homes. What's the first thing they look at when they decide what the home is valued? Is the quality of the public school district. They're mm-hmm. positively correlated with one another, right? Mm-hmm. So like, a better public investment is a better private investment. Or here's another thing, you know, like we're seeing right now with coronavirus. That's bad for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So like, wouldn't we all publicly wanna reduce that reduce the fact that these things are occurring or spreading. So public health affects everybody, right? So we have to understand that the boundaries between the so-called public and private, which we, we have a myth in this country and much of the world that these things are at odds with one another, they are, they are in union, they are in harmony with one another, and we got to get back to that.
0: I'm going to finish the article here, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. We're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, the quote that, I, that stood out to me is, we don't know whether it is the smartphone itself that can be addictive or the apps that people use uh i mean i can say pretty con uh, i'm pretty convinced at this point that it's the apps i mean the phone yeah. itself is an innocuous piece of electronics right yeah. I-, I think back to our corporate days ryan and i both had blackberries and like yeah. neither <laughs> one of us were really addicted. you're aging us man <laughs> we weren't addicted to the blackberry because it didn't have any apps on it right, <laughs> right. Yeah. it i mean I was constantly checking it for emails and text messages and stuff, Mm -hmm. but they themselves are an app or the function of of an app-like thing. And so we're addicted to our phones because all of these different inputs, these different apps that are are constantly uh, parsing our attention, and we get caught in that Bermuda Triangle of... Facebook to Instagram to Twitter and then back around and maybe you throw YouTube in the middle of it and, and all of a sudden you look down and it's been three hours and you haven't accomplished anything.
1: Yeah, and I also want to just point out like when I was talking about the economic issues, they're really important, right? So just, just give you a really simple example. In 2012, this is a long time ago, 2012, Instagram was sold to Facebook. I think it had 13 employees all under the age of 30. It was sold for a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. It's worth way more now, of course. That yeah. was a good investment for Facebook. But 13 people made a billion dollars. This was within live off of it but it's a good start <laughs> <laughs> there you go. did
2: you did you hear the interview uh where the, they, they were like doing a radio interview and they're like so what did you guys think about a billion like how was that and the yeah. guy was like yeah we were really hoping for two billion <laughs> and then they just lost it like totally making fun of this uh, reporter anyway but this yeah. was
1: within three months of kodak which it was a, one of the pioneers, not in old school, you know, uh, imaging, but in digital imaging. Mm-hmm. Kodak had so many patents, Rochester, New York, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So many patents in engineering and digital imaging and had made a lot of cool products too. 35,000 people lost their jobs yeah. because Kodak <sighs> went bankrupt. So just look at that analog and what that means on a macroeconomic level.
0: Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, it's, uh, we, got, we got some surprise questions here. Before we get into those though, I just wanted to talk about a few things. Um, we see a lot of conspiracy theories that are are spread online. And it is it seems strange that, that social media in particular has created like the kindling for these things yeah. to really yeah. you know, turn into a forest fire. Yeah. Can we talk about why conspiracy theories spread so quickly online and why are we so... Enamored by them Yeah because
1: they um, They get people's attention Right And they are able to Migrate between platforms So as a simple example When the You know Horrific shooting Mass shooting Mass killing uh, in Las Vegas occurred. You guys re- must remember this. Yeah. Um, there were some conspiracy theories that floated out. Of course, that it was you know a Hillary Clinton supporter, Rachel Maddow show viewer. That was uh, <laughs> that was like wow. I've been on Rachel Maddow show, and <laughs> trust me, it's not it's not that out there. Wow. Uh, you know, was was the person who who did all of this, and mm-hmm. that started on like platforms like Reddit. And four chan and kinda of like, you know, a little bit dark webbish. Yeah. And it the here's the thing. It was trending on Google News. It was trending on Facebook. It was oh, trending, I believe, on Twitter. That should be verified. It was it it became that that which was visible so like what we think is the reality we as human beings we as technology users is really a function of what the technology platforms decide to make visible and and make her hi- and and put up in their hierarchy right mm-hmm. I mean and it's so-called personalized but it's personalized based on mysterious data that's captured about us so the reason why that became trending is again algorithmically and computationally without the real role and intervention of a human being or many humans which is really what we should be doing, Um, there was determinations, predictions. This is all hardcore matrix algebra, Mm. and there are predictions being made that this is what will get people's attention. Mm. So imagine like journalism transforming itself into the National Enquirer. Right, we're yeah. almost there. Yeah, it, national, it, Inqu- yeah, that's I mean, what that's what's up, and we have a national Enquirer president, well, right?
0: It, well, sure, yeah. but he, even even so now, so he's great
1: and messaging for the digital economy. Give him credit; he's great at messaging oh, yeah. for the way digital uh, systems genius. function for sure. And, yeah. and yeah.
0: but I even see respectable organs like the New Yorker, for example, they'll publish yeah. something in their magazine with a very simple title, but then they have to ha- use the clickbaity title for the online version of the same yeah. exact article. Totally, and it's because. They've realized that if they use that really simple, elegant, beautiful title, it doesn't it doesn't get as many people interested in it. Yeah. And so I don't know what the answer to this is. I mean, you can't regulate clickbait, but uh, maybe there there are some some regulations yeah. behind this that we, we that we as a society can agree upon that allows us to use this technology more responsibly because the technology itself is being more responsible. I'm so torn on this because I firmly believe in freedom of speech. Yeah. Yeah. and i want
2: you know i don't want to have to silence anyone yeah. but then you know there is the extreme example like alex jones uh, oh, he yeah, was removed yeah. from twitter and facebook because yeah. he was causing uh he was just spreading so much falsities and causing panic that, to the point where people you know uh, victims of of certain uh, uh, mass shootings we're, Sandy getting, Hook, right? Yeah, right. No, were getting yeah right we're getting we're getting death threats like parents of of children who passed away like how yeah. messed up is that because of his because of his lies, it is uh, getting death threats to these to these uh, victims essentially. So I, I I do believe that there is some type of regulation that needs to happen, but I feel like it's a really slippery slope.
1: Yeah, what we need to do, I think there are a lot of opportunities in this space as well. We need to think about hiring more people in the right kinds of jobs. And mm-hmm. one area where we could hire more people is in the area of auditing, auditing mm-hmm. systems. And this is like something, and this allows human beings. You know, with I hope living wages and and you know like the the social contract. You know, Elizabeth Warren in conversation with me for this book um, described uh, the the former the former experience, like she talked about when she was a kid. You know, when we used to work, we would work uh, even minimum wage work was sufficient for education healthcare etc right housing mortgage etc that is now dissolved now we got we have an opportunity to introduce new meaningful humane jobs where you can audit systems you can make sure you can kind of intervene to understand what those systems are optimizing for or not in engineering world we used to call this thing and it's again there's a lot of playfulness and I appeal I try to appeal to my friends in tech using playful language we call it AB testing right mm-hmm. you guys must know this oh, yeah, where sure. you like intervene here and you look at the dependent variable yep. and so like let's do some AB testing on some of these algorithmic systems and see where they work and where they don't or if we're building AI and machine learning systems which all of these systems are u- are using machine learning technology mm-hmm. let's make sure that the right stakeholders are in the room in designing the Systems. So, like, for example, in Beyond the Valley, I give examples of criminal justice, AI systems, um, courtroom systems that are kind of like minority report. They make decisions on the likelihood of a defendant creating a future crime mm-hmm. and how they're all racist. All those systems are racist or human resources, AI systems for science and engineering jobs that are going to replace human resources workers with automation that are completely discriminating against women Mm. because we have that bias in our society. Implicit bias becomes normalized by technology. So what if instead we could have women's groups helping guide and audit and help designing those systems? Or Black Lives Matter, you know, I'm a progressive, like uh, boldly, Mm -hmm. Uh, like Black Lives Matter, uh, Patrice is on the cover of my book, Patrice Mm -hmm. Colors, And like, you know, Black Lives Matter should be like involved in, in regulating and auditing and maybe even designing predictive policing systems if we even wanted them. Or I give the example in the book, this one will jar people, facial recognition systems that again and again and again misidentify black folk, including 28 members of Congress, as Criminals from mugshot databases, which are oh, disproportionately back, black and brown, or ICE, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, going into our neighborhoods here in East L.A., but also all over the country with facial recognition software sold by Amazon, tethered to their body cameras, misidentifying people who are documented as undocumented because their entire immigration databases are Latinx people. This is like a huge, so the pain is always borne by the most vulnerable. Like that's not a way to have a society that lifts everybody up. That's bad for business too. Mm -hmm. I like to make the point, that's bad for business. Let's go there, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. know, Let's talk about, you're talking about several things that are political or political adjacent here. And I'd like to talk to you about how technology is currently shaping our politics and then how how it can, uh, how it could potentially in a, a more utopian version shape our politics.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I think that um, as we move forward, you know, in in, I mean, what both like there's some unfortunate news, which is as 2020 approaches, nothing has changed Mm. in terms of our actual uh, regulation. Also, please note that um, and this is not just about Trump and Brad Parscale, but they have. Their their ground game is going to be, or their game is going to be through Facebook. It's They've already, already, it's already it happening. They've already made it clear. Yeah. I mean, th- so there's a lot of disingenuous stuff that comes out, like with the political ad stuff. Twitter and Jack Dorsey got a lot of like positive feedback for saying we don't do political ads, but their business model isn't political ads, mm. you know? So you just got to like look at what these guys are doing very carefully. So yes, our how we get news is a function of our
0: online uh, mysterious online systems. Yeah, no, we're not getting the newspaper at our front door anymore. No, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're not. We're not, and, and that's okay. But then the question is, how do we design it so that we're getting the right information? Yeah. We're not bombarded by it. And right now, everything is breaking news. But if everything is yeah. breaking, then the news is broken. The problem with the news now is we look
2: oh, at it. We look at a meme. And the meme is news, yeah. and and that's a problem. I mean, if you look like going back to that documentary, uh, the the Great Hack, yeah. and how Cambridge and analytics what they did for the twenty sixteen election. Is they got a bunch of people's data, and they were able to segregate? Oh, these are the people who are persuadable. They're on the fence, so we're going to flood them with as many uh, you know political ads as we can to persuade them to the side that we want to. Based on
1: psychometrics, not the fact that like you know they're we're talking about you know two black folk living in Florida, but that that they can be that there's a that that all the data that's being gathered about them could be mapped to complex psychological models of their identity. So it's not that this person, this is an African-American, it's that he's an African-American who's neurotic about this content. So you can stimulate people to even not vote or Mm -hmm. choose. And that's what we saw happen with Cambridge Analytica. So like, look- So what you're saying is
0: not traditional voter suppression. It's more, it's more complex, and maybe even more nefarious in a way.
1: I think it's more because it's more implicit. So, in part of Beyond the Valley, I compare a lot of this to Aldous Huxley's brave New world. Mm-hmm. and I, and i and I look at that in relation to a conversation I had with David Axelrod, you know, mm-hmm. from the Obama administration. Yeah, and CNN, yeah. And he like
0: did the data for that campaign.
1: Absolutely. Right? Yeah. He's one of the brilliant guys behind the Obama machine, you know? Mm. And he's now on CNN. And he said that everything has changed. He said like he said he called our experiences online as an endless orgy of chocolate
2: cake. Oh my god. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. great. I, I knew
1: he'd have a good one. And you know what? It here's the thing. It's like Say we were the exact same age, say we were the same political persuasion, say we lived in the exact same place, say we had the same education level, you know, like say we could just map on demographic levels and be more or less identical. You could be sitting right next to me and we could both be on YouTube or Google News or Facebook. You know or whatever some portal to the wider world and we could have completely different exp- lenses of what news we see
0: because of our ethnic backgrounds
1: because of psychometric implicit uh, mapping and also because the individual what we call personalization and again this is a branding hype
0: term personalization feels good oh it's for me it's great well personalization can be good and many be. times we want per we want personalized service Quite often, not from our technology, though. It, when, we want personalized service because the, the person at the front desk remembers your name. That's personalized. But, but what you're talking about is, is the negative side of personalization.
1: Because the behavioral aspect of it, right? So, like, behaviorally, the, the, the computation is, is optimized to what will keep us on there. Right. And so that might be distinct, even though we are similar in all these other ways. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's why it's personalized in ways that suit them that we don't understand. So the minimum has to be disclosure. And we also should have the opportunity to navigate these platforms based on different heuristics. Right. Like what if I want to log on to Google to look at multiple political perspectives. I should be able to make that choice. Shouldn't I be able, maybe I should be able to visualize that ecosystem in some way, right? Yeah. What we have is a mere list and note please that 95% of the time we don't go to page two of Google. Right. 75% of the time we don't go past the first three or four search results. So what Google feeds us in an, in an arbitrary list that we are completely in the dark around becomes what what counts as knowledge.
0: Yeah, yeah. right. And, and, and we to take it a step farther, 77% of people engage with something on social media without actually reading it. So yeah. they'll read the, the title. You know, you see a tweet or a Facebook yeah. post. I do it. You know, I and, do it sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's a sensationalized headline and then you run with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you, you retweet it even though you haven't read the article or you make a comment on the Facebook post even though you haven't read the article. And I have to stop myself from doing that because the the, the, t- the headlines themselves are, they're set up to get me to make that comment without even reading the Do you remember here. Colin Wright? He wrote that... Uh, so, like, when, when him and I first started The
2: Minimalist, yeah. something that would constantly come up um, in the Google search was Orion Nicodemus and Joshua Fields Milburn gay. It was like,
0: the number one search term for Number one, one search, search term.
2: Time. So, our friend Colin wrote an article with that title to draw people there. And if they read it, there was actually nothing, no substance there of like what our sexuality preferences. It was an
0: article about the the dangers of search engine optimization. Exactly. Well, Let me give you an example. Just
2: building off that. If you, uh,
1: if if you used to put, you know, in Google suggestions, Mm -hmm. if you type Trayvon Martin is a, or Ryan Zimmerman is a Trayvon Martin, it would be like, is a thug. Is a gangster? Is a criminal? Oh, Ryan Zimmerman is a hero. Blah blah blah. You know these are these are, again these socially held biases. So why does this happen? First of all, it's not because the people in, at Google or these other companies are like racist or what have you. Like it's just it's just that the, that these systems are built by people based on how they themselves sort of want to computationally express the world. So that's sort of. AI systems are a function, one, of their designers and Mm -hmm. the ways they're, and and just the the culture and demographics of their designers. I'll give you tons of examples of that. Two, the data sets they learn from. So we're in an unequal world. We can always improve our union. We can always grow. And that's a cool thing. It's part of a process of harmony and healing. And and we can do that. But if the world is unequal and that ends up informing the systems that are invisibly embedding themselves in every aspect of our lives, are structuring, what we see, how we think, how we feel, as we've talked about, mm-hmm. then that's a real problem, right? Yeah. Because it's it's embedded in, right? Like the judge could use the the AI system to make decisions around the likelihood of a future crime and basically say, and, and we wouldn't even know it, right? Like the judge could be informed by that computational system and say, hey, a black guy with no felony conviction is is I'm going to give him a much harsher sentence because the system is telling me that than a white guy who has multiple felony convictions. This is what ProPublica has put out. Mm. So this book Beyond the Valley really builds on great research, not just academic, because academics sometimes were behind the curve. Journalists mm. like you guys, journalists
2: are our allies in all of this. Mm. Yeah, the, the human aspect. Well, I mean, you said it earlier. Like these systems are, they're going to be inherently racist if if you let if you just let the ai take over i mean no. google's image recognition system had trouble disambiguating images from
1: african americans and gorillas mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys heard about that and so what did it do they actually removed gorilla from their image their image like corpus from their database oh, wow.
2: that was their way of dealing with it Wow. wow. Oh my God. Well, we've got some surprise questions here. Let's uh, let's hop into some of these, Ryan. All right, so SP wants to know, can we design more environmentally friendly tech yep. that can be repaired and not just trashed?
1: Such a rad question. I mean, this is kind of a, one of the big causes I look at, right? We talked about the extraction of minerals. We talked about planned obsolescence. Yes, yes, yes. We Right to repair at the minimum is important. That's gonna stimulate entrepreneurialism. It's gonna stimulate jobs. It's gonna incentivize people to create businesses that work with. With different economic constraints, people have it's going to be great for workers. It's obviously going to be great for the environment. I yeah. give examples in Beyond the Valley of people in Kenya who I was witnessing who were just taking like scrap, like electronic scrap, and repairing and recycling everything. They were taking broken phones, grabbing other like electronic waste, fusing it, you know, kind of creating these hybrid phones, repairing them, and selling them. Like on the street. They're called Juakali, which in Swahili means hot sun. These are dudes mm. and women who basically have like tables and soldering guns and they're out on the street. And this one blows your mind. I saw people doing this with 3D printers. And they built 3D printers that outperformed American 3D printers and Chinese 3D printers. I saw this in Nairobi. Oh, wow they're called ab3d africa born 3d i was talking about this with the atlantic and all these you know big mainstream media guys and they were like whoa and why are those technologies they're cheaper and they're they're based upon the logic of environmental renewal and why are people doing this? It's not because they're environmentalists. It's because they're doing it because they got to hustle. It's mm-hmm. not a right? necessity. Yeah. yeah. So scarcity and necessity is not just the mother of invention, but necessity
2: is the mother of innovation. Mm. Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting how regulation is supposed to help Uh, Help people help the planet, but the regulations a lot of the regulations we have it it, again It's putting that profit first. It's putting the corporations first to make it illegal to repair a phone. is crazy
1: It works with Apple's model and you know, is it really that different? I'm gonna be a little Inflammatory here is that really that different than a Monsanto seed right? Yeah designed to die So you have to force force new consumption never mind the dongles
2: and all that would drive me crazy. Yeah (laughs) Here's an idea Josh (laughs) buy a 3d printer. Uh Uh-huh print a 3D printer with that 3D (laughs) printer and then return the 3D printer.
1: And you know why the the 3D printers (laughs) outperform the American and Chinese ones? Because they're built, and this is why the word innovators in the title of my book Mm -hmm. is because they are built by people who understand the environmental conditions the mechanical conditions and the users' experiences in that country, so they are optimized for the local market.
0: Well, a lot of our tech now is not considering the user experience, or if they are, it is seventh or eighth on the list, yeah. uh, behind all, all of these other factors. And and the the thing you talk about in the book is how technology is you know, made by one you know, percent of one percent. Oh yeah, and and. It's not necessarily benefiting everyone else as a result. And even if they were great humanitarians, you know, I'm from Silicon Valley,
1: man. Like I, uh, <laughs> I you know, and I'm, uh, it, and I, I love it there. No, no issue. But like, Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Seattle do not really represent
2: the entire world. Right. right? Yeah, it's a great point. Tim writes in. I get so many unnecessary notifications from apps on my phone. Yeah. Yep. Why do why do why do companies keep bombarding us with notifications well they want your time and attention it's funny anytime i download behavioral experiment yeah anytime i download an app like like mariah and i'll be flying in in europe and like we're doing ryanair so i'll download the ryanair app and the first thing it asks is Will you allow Ryanair to send you notifications? Nope. No. Nope. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of up to us to really decide on what notifications we want sent to us, right? I mean yeah. At least we have that, that privilege of deciding how, how, how many times we want our phone to ding.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, behavioral experiments are constantly constantly being conducted on us by these tech companies.
0: Without us knowing.
1: Oh, absolutely. Mm. And I will give you like, so that occurs with the notifications, right? It's all about A-B testing in those cases too. If if I do this, what, are, what does the user do and how does that uh, optimize or not for my hidden business model based on data extraction? And I also want you to note that it's not just about profitability and revenues when it comes to these companies. It's also about valuation and valuation associated with data. I want to give you a very... Uh, uh, like I think this example is amazing Uber is losing money every month. Mm. You all know that, right?
2: Oh, wow. I did not realize Uber that.
1: loses and the, and and Uber is so inexpensive compared to a obviously unionized taxi or what have you. And that's not and 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 that's because our Uber prices are are are, are subsidized by rich investors right. in Uber. So uh-huh. then you would might ask the question, why would these guys be why would Uber be valued over 100 billion dollars? Why would these investors want to like play ball, you know, Uber? You So to look at that you have to look at the SEC filings, security exchange commissions filings. which some of my students do, we look at it. And what you see there is Uber has to disclose, and this is what they did, that what we're actually trying to do is gather such intimate behavioral data on logistics, on transportation, on people's motivations, on mobility, and so on, that that data, we can then figure out ways to transact that data to have a leg up on every other industry, including automated vehicles. So one thing you might notice, some of the listeners might notice this, or viewers, is... um, the Uber won't actually come to exactly where you are. Mm-hmm. It might come, have you guys noticed this? Yeah. And it's not when you pay less, it just may come a little away from you. Mm-hmm. That's not a, a mistake being made by either Uber or the driver. That's Uber trying to figure out what you are willing to do and how that transacts into your experience and whether you're willing to continue with that because it's about optimizing route efficiency for Uber.
0: So if I give them oh three God. stars, then they'll say, oh, he he wasn't willing to walk as far perhaps. Or, All
1: behavioral experiments, large
0: scale Behavioral experiments
1: in large scale databases that data scientists are competing upon all the time, and well, some of
0: this oh can be good God. like and, yeah, and sure. so, so think about it like if they were actually trying to improve the user experience yeah i i'm I'm trying to to you know put on the, the rose colored glasses sure. here or, or gi- uh, giving them the benefit of the doubt for a second if if they were trying to say, what well, look, we want to create the best user experience we're going to test we're going to a b split test this thing that's a good reason to do that. But there are a whole bunch of other reasons to, um, well, to, to fatten their pockets as let's opposed- Let's pivot back.
1: Is it about user experience or the experience we want for the user, right? Mm-hmm. And let, let's just kind of like look at some of the terms we take for granted more generally in tech. Like, are we users or are we being used? Well, sure, it's both. Are we Googling or are we being Googled, uh. right? Are we socializing on Facebook and Instagram or are we being socialized? Just just like, it's, it's brilliant the branding language associated with tech companies. And part of that is because they call themselves tech companies. Like, is Uber a tech company? Mm. Sure, in a way, but it's the largest taxi company in the history of the world. I attended multiple Uber strikes in Kenya and Uganda. they're all over the place there and they've infiltrated the informal economy. But how do people strike against Uber when it's 8,000 miles away? Yeah. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. There's no, there's no picket line in in your town. That is crazy to me that like it's when you pay for an Uber ride,
2: like basically they're, they're trying to not lose as much money as they're losing, but really what they're after is your, your habits and to sell your data. Yeah. To allow them to be a leg up on automated
1: vehicles, but it's all sorts of other stuff. The data itself, especially the intimacy of the data combined with the behavioral, Uh, Mm -hmm. abilities to make deductions from the data is what the value is. Because valuation is not necessarily the same as profitability. They're positively correlated, but in certain cases, you can have
2: incredible valuation with low profitability. That's why uh, WhatsApp was sold for, I mean, something crazy. It was like WhatsApp was sold for more than what like Iceland's economy was worth, you know, $28 billion or something, $200 or $150 per user. But that's, it just shows how valuable personal day and i get
1: into a thought experiment a little bit in beyond the valley where i say hey is a lot of this being overvalued on a speculative level and and if these guys i mean just as a thought experiment if if the actions of these companies are going to create are going to facilitate so much economic inequality which is already a huge problem globally and in our country uh what are we all going to be worth to make them worth much Mm. is it a lose-lose situation it's just as a thought experiment. Yeah.
0: You know? and, and, and when I think about this, when you're first saying that these these investors are subsidizing, at first my my first inclination is like, well, those idiots mm-hmm. but th- they're not idiots. No. And and they are they're putting their money into it for a reason. So temporarily we're experiencing reduced costs of Uber and Lyft rides, but long term the the costs are going to be far greater. And
1: remember many of the wealthiest people in the world made their money through tech like of the 10 wealthiest so like people are talking about mike bloomberg as a media mogul for example he made his money through technology to, through stock market trading technology mm. oh wow. just just understand that technology is that vehicle of economic disenfranchisement and advancement too Ryan,
2: right, we have an anonymous question here design is supposed to resolve usability problems yeah why then are our apps and devices creating more anxiety within each Because they're designed for
1: the for the outcomes that the companies want. And design's not just about usability, it's about uh, you're designing for particular life experiences and outcomes. Mm -hmm. And designers have to uh, are are not necessarily like we were just talking about with user experience, you know, designers are not inherently there to serve (laughs) <laughs> their users or their customers. Right. Designers are there to enact a particular sort of mission that is articulated to them. Right. Yeah. So the, the so design in that sense is an ability to to fuse between the engineering world and the experiential world. And I have a PhD in design studies. So like for me, design is all about the process of opening up or opening off different pathways of li- living and experience. Yeah. So that's what I think of design as. You know, sort of a ways to. Uh, to re- to relate people to
2: experiences to technologies to narratives. Yeah. Well, I mean yeah. th- their their job is to aggregate eyeballs and it makes me think of the coronavirus. If if the media can make you paranoid and scared about the coronavirus, well then what are you going to do? You're going to keep checking keep for watching. Yeah, you're going to keep watching because Now if
0: they were to tell you the opposite, "Hey, it's fine. You're not going to come back."
2: Right, exactly. So the, exactly. the yeah, and it's unfortunately that like we we are uh, when we are emotional. That is when we react, and that's when we're you know looking for things. We we run away from pain. We run towards pleasure, mm. and it's unfortunate that the, the media, uh, in, in in general, I'm not saying every single media outlet. Josh and I were having this conversation earlier. I said the media. He's like, "What do you mean by the media?" <laughs> and I'm just talking about by and large, you know, a large percentage of the media. Yeah. Um, they use fear. They don't use happiness. They don't use uh, good feelings. They use bad feelings because we are more apt to look out for that that anxious feeling. Because guess what? If we can go to a, a news outlet and uh, oh, you know, I, this is where I know the coronavirus is, and these are the places I need to avoid, and this is what I need to do to avoid the coronavirus, it's going to subside that anxiety a little bit. But there's still enough there to keep us going back. Impulsive and, f- and compulsive behavior. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And
1: compulsive, compulsive behavior it, it is pretty easy to control and route, you know, and
0: mm-hmm. stimulate. Well, to echo Ryan's point, yeah. uh, we do have to start to call out some of the individuals as well. I mean, I heard, uh, oh, what was his name? Scott G on uh, Sam Harris's podcast recently. He, he was talking about... Um, how he thinks Mark Zuckerberg is the most dangerous man uh, in the world. I got to
1: get on that podcast and kind of push, push that a little further. I mean, I look, I think, I think, (laughs) I mean, I I think there's a lot of different ways we could dissect that. Right. So like, of course, Mark Zuckerberg in many ways is more powerful than a head of state. I remember when, during the Obama administration, when the prime minister of India came to the U S for like a state meeting with Obama before uh, Narendra Modi, who I is a, is awful in my opinion and is inciting through the use of social media lots of anti-muslim violence as we speak in india Mm. um but before he came to meet obama he came to silicon valley to meet mark zuckerberg um yes i mean i think i think mark zuckerberg is uh is, is is like a lot of engineers and a lot of execs who are not really Exposed to, or maybe able to really engage with these kind of systemic humanizing kinds of issues, human centric issues, mm-hmm. uh, is detached. Is 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 disconnected. Yeah. Many of the connectors are disconnected. Yeah. I met Mark Zuckerberg ten years ago. I was in grad school at Harvard when he was an undergraduate, along with Pete Buttigieg, actually. And um, and you know, I when I met him ten years ago, I just saw this sort of. Yeah, you know, he also, first he offered me intimate Facebook data ten years ago. I decided not to go there because I was more interested in working with indigenous communities and power to the people kind of stuff, like my books about. Um, but then I noticed a sort of a, a sort of detached agnosticism, mm-hmm. you know, and that's very common in our engineering fields. Uh, we don't really infuse humanistic thinking, uh, emo- emotive thinking ethics-oriented thinking, political thinking in our engineering schools. And this is one of the things I'm really trying to push at UCLA where I teach. Like we got to, we're trying to build data and society programs, but we got to have them be about society too, not just data.
2: Well, you know, there's got to be some like cognitive dissonance when you're someone like Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he is, he obviously puts money first. And if you're if you're going at it that way, like you you have to ignore some of the systemic problems that you're creating.
1: And a couple other elements to that. Um, the, Facebook has a hidden system, which is the, some, some reporters have exposed, called the dual class share system, which means that if all the investors in Facebook chose to kick out Mark, Uh, they wouldn't be able to because his class of shares is in a different category. This is something, this is like the hidden political economy that one has to look at. And second is, it's pretty notable to look at how a lot of the tech bazillionaires, you know, like Bezos included, um, who didn't pay taxes, like their companies don't pay much of any taxes, even though they profit from all our socialized costs, right? Like Mm -hmm. roads and uh, et cetera, and the internet itself. Um, How they are investing so much in post-apocalyptic bunkers, Kind of Doctor Strange Love style and space. Oh, wow. And it's kind of like, you know, Tribe Cold Quest has this line in their last record where, like, you know, it's called The Space Program, this like awesome song that they put out being like, we're stuck here and the rest of them are out of here.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh. Let's we'll hop on to some more questions here. Yeah. Sorry for that cynical. No, politic. no, it's it, well, you know, it's,
2: it's it's things that we need to consider. So, no, thanks for bringing it up.
0: Yvathi has a question for us.
2: Is it going is it going to be impossible to live without leaving a digital footprint? We know how real things like plastic and CO two leave an impact, but how is the virtual world going to impact planet Earth?
1: That's a great question. Well, mm-hmm. first of all, the virtual world is not virtual; it's material, like we talked about with energy grid, with minerals, with electronic waste, and so on. But second of all, yes, you're really you're really right on, Yuvatni, U- right? What's yeah, Yuvatni. Yeah. yeah, great question. Um, it's pretty Im- unimaginable at this point to not think of ourselves as constantly living leaving digital footprints. The question is: is what interventions we can take to ensure who has access to what and who has power over what? Mm -hmm. right? And I really want to emphasize this point, especially because we're on the precipice of moving into 5G networks. I've been in multiple like kind of glitzy-ish conferences because my work's become more public, not just academic conferences. And everybody is talking about 5G networks, right? And basically what that means, what is 5G? It's basically, it's, it's internet of thing interoperability and smart cities. So like, Everything will be tethered to the 5G network, like this microphone, this coffee cup. It will all be interoperable. All Mm. of these things will be trackable and relational. Mm. And so what we're talking about is digital footprints on a scale we've never, ever seen before. So that's why it's so important we get this right. And one of the things I've been advocating for is like water and other sorts of, you know, kind of natural goods, spectrum should be a public good like Mm. spectrum frequencies. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, 5G should be governed by people and public interests. Again, my hope is that I can... Push for this kind of advocacy moving forward. Um, hopefully, in a Bernie Sanders administration. Yeah,
0: I, I worry about 5G from the health health implications as well. And yeah, I, I know there are a lot of people, my my oh. wife included, who are very sensitive to like. Yeah. Uh, we have to turn our Wi-Fi off at night because otherwise, her her sleep is wow. is is negatively affected. Huh. And, and so I know the, the, there have been various studies where you put plants next to Wi-Fi routers and they die. And yeah. And, and it's, I have one like that right now. <laughs> Oh, there you go, and and so um, I also worry about you know, and regulation absolutely needs to take place here until we know enough about five G or we don't even know enough about four G or three G at this point, and we're we're just carrying on. It reminds me, and this is a parodic example, but the the door to door salesman he used to um, uh, sell uh, oh even better better uh, shoe salesman. You used to X ray your foot. Yeah because they didn't know that x-rays were bad for you right and so the shoe it didn't really hurt us that much because we weren't buying shoes that frequently back then but the all the shoe people died of cancer yeah people were selling shoes we
1: often introduce technology before we do the more important part which is like the social cultural and political thinking and planning Mm -hmm. right and so as a result we're always stuck trying to catch up right i mean look at our politicians how much do they actually know about these issues we saw when mark was you know in front of uh capitol hill right orrin hatch was like wait a second if you're a free service how do you make any money and and (laughs) Mm -hmm. zuckerberg's response was sir we sell ads right so like so like i think that this is true throughout societies, throughout history, right? Like technology and science moves in rapid and discontinuous ways and then the human reaction and response to it is slower. So we need to understand that that's a natural course of events. We don't need to be down about it, but it's time for us to get our act together and deal with these issues before we just kind of you know treading into other brave new
2: digital worlds yeah for sure darren writes in how does one resist the social the social pressures of not using technology it seems if you don't yeah. use the latest social media platform you tend to get left out of the loop among friends it is kind of true i mean i got off of facebook you know how you would know if someone got off of facebook they'll tell you
1: are you on? Are you on Instagram? I'm on Instagram, yeah. which I
2: guess I'm still on Facebook technically. Sure. But um, I will say that I do feel this sometimes, where something will happen, and I'll y'all be talking to someone. I'm like, oh, that happened. They're like, oh yeah, they're like don't aren't you on Facebook? And I'm like, oh no, yeah. not on Facebook, because a lot of a lot of information does get, uh, yeah, it gets transmitted there that I miss out on. However, um, I can look at my friends and family, and you know if they're gonna judge me on not being on Facebook, then. Um, I, I, that's not going to bother me. Like, that's, yeah. that's just going to show me who my true friends are, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, my parents aren't on it. I mean, look, it's... it's um. I don't think the solution is necessarily all of us getting off Facebook or getting off this or that or the yeah. other. I think it's about
0: fighting and pushing for balance. But wouldn't you know? a mass exodus, uh, it, it, in a way, would force them to take some sort mm, of drastic would. measures? It would, mm. and there's interest in,
1: al- in alternatives, but because of the network effects of Facebook, meaning three people plus billion people on it it's impossible to see alternatives and competitors so it would just have to be the absence of facebook that we would have to get to remember the vast majority of facebook and google users are not in europe or the united states they're in the continents of the global south latin america south america africa asia Mm -hmm. etc right Mm -hmm. and so that creates a so they are monetizing large-scale usage so yeah i mean i'm very uh, like sympathetic to that question it's we have to make choices about how we want to live, you know, on individual levels. That's an area where we can exert some agency.
2: Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean yeah. there are it is weird there are some social pressures, but I guess we get to decide how we let those pressures affect us. We can like we do in all of our lives. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Like
1: when we're in a bar or when we're at work or when we're like with our friendship groups, you know? Like we can choose we can be mindful and we can we have power over how we wanna relate to others and be in the world.
0: Can we talk about how 100%. mindfulness might play a role in something like this? I know you're a big proponent of yeah. mindfulness.
1: Yeah, I'm a I am a am a you know practicing Buddhist. Uh, I was raised Hindu Um, You know, I did some meditation and chanting before I before I came over here this morning. It really helps me. It it sets my my life on a personal level in a much more positive sense. It allows me to be more aware. It, It helps me smile more. It helps me be more compassionate to others and less locked in, which I can get in like all of us into the Competition and oh, this person messed you know, effed me over. I got to get him back, kind of de- kind of deal. Mm. So I think that is sort of a, at the minimum, as a healthy as as a health practice, right? Forget about the religious sides of it. In fact, it's not even about that. It's really about the a practice of being present, being present in the here and now, mm. and um, that can make life so enjoyable. Yeah, you know, and it allows us to move past our compulsions of. Of boredom and ennui, you know, which naturally always, always means we turn to our smartphones. Absolutely, you know? we
0: turn to whatever pacifiers we have, and that's yeah. the easiest pacifier right there. Let me pacify myself for this moment. And you, you just mentioned uh, the joy, and and quite often I find these things actually extract joy from our lives. They give us pleasure, but we and we mistake pleasure. With joy, and mm-hmm. I, I would argue getfully that getfully they're put. they're on the same continuum, yeah. right? But but pleasure is not the same thing as joy. Joy actually makes room for all the other emotions, for compassion and and grief and and even discontent to a certain extent. I, I feel that that joy comes from our ability to interact with others as a community, not 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 reacting against something, but 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 joining for something, uh, and, yeah. and and and. Quite often, this becomes a, a barrier. There, there's a, a I don't know if you saw Ronnie Chang's new stand-up special, but it, he no. was hilarious. I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, it's so <laughs> good. He um, he he. Awesome. One of the jokes on there. Spoiler alert. He uh yeah. he says it seems like Americans are in a competition to see how many screens they can put between their face <laughs> and the wall. Yeah. Yeah, I've got my TV on the wall, and I get, then then I have like the laptop on my lap, and then an iPad, and yeah. and a phone, and my Apple Watch, yeah. and like yeah. Yeah. I have five screens between my face and the wall. And and it's true. It's it's when one distraction isn't enough. The answer should should be that we get rid of that one distraction instead we we add additional distractions into the mix. some
1: of our greatest teachers and in, in Buddhism but in other practices also have gone to tech companies like Thich Nhat Hanh you know mm-hmm. the great Vietnamese Buddhist right. teacher um, who I've had the just privilege of sitting with a couple times like you know like a decade ago and even less and he's gone there and talked about you know how we want to you know like how we process how we embody how we perceive how we feel, you know, Mm. and kind of just bringing that back into the picture. Um, You know, there are ways we can think about engaging with our phones in more slow ways. There are ways we can think about uh, just being present and not multitasking. There's just a lot we can do. We can even think about spending some of that that anxiety-producing so-called free time maybe being anonymous and like serving others or just trying to help others it feels freaking good you know when you can do that i'm also fresh off of (laughs) i was at esalen last weekend oh well esalen institute you guys gotta check this place out it's it's hot springs redwood forests in big sur okay integrated oh, i read about this in, a, in the new yorker all organic yeah and i was actually in that article oh, cuz really? the new yorker writer was like infiltrating it and uh-huh. he became my buddy and then he was kind of you should check yeah it was it was it was a great article andrew morantz my uh-huh. friend wrote that who um writes about, who wrote a great book about trolls actually called Anti-Social Media, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was there and I was literally in a class, I was teaching, they uh, invited me there. So it was an honor to talk about some of these things, but I also was sitting in a class, a Buddhism class called Awakening Joy. Mm -hmm. And it was like, whoa, I was like this, I'm like so blissed out. I was meeting so many people, making so many friends, and I was like, wait a second, I want my life to be a little more like this. Yeah. And, 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 Instead and, and, of being trolled on Twitter, which is what happens sometimes. Right. Sure, and it seems, <laughs> yeah. it seems to me, <laughs> It, it seems does, to me yeah. that the,
0: <laughs> the, if these machines are creating discontent, so this is for Darren or anyone else who's listening to this, yes. if, it's, if it is becoming a a, a a factory for discontent, that is a sign that we either need to change the behavior, we need to reduce the, the use, or in some cases we need to eliminate it altogether. Yes. It, it may not mean indefinitely, but it could be for a an extended period of time so you can figure out how to bring it back in in a way that adds value to your life, not in a way that distracts you or gets in the way of living your
2: life. I think yeah. these ex- these mindfulness experiments or, or, or meditation, whatever it is, it really helps us, uh, you said it earlier, uh, it helps us to Get through the boredom to get to get used to the boredom, and I think that is like a superpower these days. And
1: I'm meditating right now, guys. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm 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 observing my breath. I've been doing it most of our conversation, even though like the dopamine's flowing because I'm having so much fun talking to you guys. Yeah. But it's it's something we can do all the time. Yeah, it's something we can do all the time. And yeah, boredom is a weird state, and it's cool. Like, look, all all love and compassion for people who feel like they gotta turn to other stuff, like to fill up of those course. gaps, yeah. the emotional gaps, the psychological gaps. Big love for people. People on that, but like know also that there are opportunities to step out of that um, that false uh, duality.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You can always begin again. That's yeah. the the thing I've learned most All from, this, from, from from meditation. It's helped me more yeah. than anything else. Is, yeah, Sam Harris taught me that. Yeah, yeah, I love that.
2: Wow. Uh, we oh, got one more question, question here from Ingrid here. How can you use technology to bridge that gap between designers and users? The focus is often on the negative consequences of technological applications, but I feel like its usage depends on the intentions of the user.
0: Yeah. I, I think quite often we, we don't yeah. we don't actually know the... We don't go into it with a specific intention, and quite often that's the problem, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's partly our intentions, but it's partly about... Um, us coming together as a collective as users and making particular claims of what we want them to do for to us and Mm. for us i really have tried i think you guys have gotten my vibe like during this conversation to not have it be simply about us feeling bad about ourselves us shaming ourselves, us feeling like the burden is on us. Look, we're talking about the wealthiest set of industries in the history of the world. Google was the biggest lobbyist in Washington, D.C. during the Obama administration. There was a revolving door between Google execs. I'm not saying that's bad, but Google execs and and Obama administration like higher ups, right? Mm. And so like, they have created the most profitable and highly valued business multiple trillion plus dollar businesses Amazon Google Facebook etc right Mm -hmm. Microsoft uh, Apple Mm -hmm. Um, in the history of the world and they have done so in a way that uh, unfortunately has become parasitic and toxic for on multiple levels as we've talked about Mm -hmm. so it is it is it is time for us to come together. It's why I'm writing all these mainstream media pieces. It's why I'm joining you all right now to get to a world of balance, of compassion. Yes, profits, cool, you know? Good good work, Steve Jobs, on on doing what you did. I went to the same high school as Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you know? A lot of cool things about that guy's story. But, like, let's not just elevate and mythologize him with understanding what the corporation he created has turned into, Mm -hmm. and maybe even what he did when he was there, you know? Let's actually be clear and force our companies that profited off of American taxpayer money, off of our environment, off of our climate, off of our educational system to give back, to be socially accountable. And it starts at the minimum with things like paying taxes and disclosure and accountability. Mm -hmm. And we can take things a lot further. And I have tons of friends, like like I mentioned to you guys, I almost worked at Google myself. When I was in grad school, I was being recruited by Google. They Googled me, you know? In like 2004, I joined UCLS faculty in 2005, and now I've been there almost 15 years. And like, you know they're great people in that world we just got to figure out ways like let's at the minimum ask them to do some ab testing you know mm. let's try to figure out like i have a range of proposals some and they go from levels of relative conservatism to more and more progressive mm. and let's start at the beginning and let's get them let's get them on board let's mm. let's all work together on these issues because mm. Unless we all come together and work together on these issues rather than screaming and vilifying, mm-hmm. uh, we'll maintain the status quo. And that's just unacceptable. So, I have that's why I have so much hope. Like, I hope you guys are feeling that. Yeah. I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of optimism. A lot of the stories I share in this book show how people with so much less are actually innovators and producing other, other outcomes for technology. I tell this story, I'll just tease it. Um, in the book, one of my favorite chapters is of all these indigenous people who I've been like working with and, and hanging out with for years uh, in the Oaxaca area and in Chiapas. Oaxaca is like one of my favorite parts of the world. All these Zapotec, Mixtec, and Mihe people have built their own autonomous cell phone networks. Oh, wow and this is the largest community-owned cell phone networks of the world or how like Mayan kids in Chiapas have built their own mesh networks, their own internet and intranet and community radio networks. This kind of stuff is happening all over the world. It's happening in Argentina, in South Africa, in Catalonia, in Colombia, in Brazil. These are not just little small-scale fetish things. This is a movement that's occurring right now. In Detroit, there's a Detroit community technology project which is so rad. Motherboard's done good reporting on that. Red Hook, the only function digital network after Superstorm Sandy was a community created mesh intranet network in New York City. Wow. So like, look, we, we can do this. The power like, of we the can people. do this. Power the people and businesses
0: can work with us on
1: this. Yeah.
0: And like, let's, well, let's get there. Businesses are people within, I mean, of course. They, they all are. And that's what I was trying to get at with when Ryan and I were having that conversation. And whether it's us saying Mark Zuckerberg is good or bad or whatever, there are always people behind these decisions mm-hmm. and behind the algorithms that are made. And now's a good time to influence those people before the algorithms just begin influencing everything. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're more and more training algorithms to supplant a lot of human work.
1: And a lot of gig workers are, are actually often perceived, and there's some filings on this and in investigative reporting. A lot of gig workers like Uber drivers, et cetera, are actually incubating data for automated systems, which will then, you know, and Amazon workers with wristbands monitoring their oh productivity and activity. Again, that's seeding, computational and robotic systems. So robots can't unionize. Uh, maybe robots go into the Terminator mode eventually, <laughs> maybe not, um, but like, you know, we'll see where we go with this, but like we gotta make sure we protect human beings. At the end of the at the end of the day, we are a species and we need to come together as a species. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're optimistic. You're not nihilistic about this and I can really appreciate that. I wanna acknowledge you for yeah. doing some meaningful work. I wanna encourage folks to check out Beyond the Valley. Where should they find you online? Oh well you, you people can engage with me on Twitter at Ramesh Media R A
1: M E S H Media and uh, that's a great way to reach out to me um, you can check out my website which is my full name ramesh srinivasan.org so there's a lot of what I'm up to up there and you know I just I'm just open to continuing to build with everybody and anybody um, I again think that there that we can take this in a in a humane direction but I feel like the time to act is right now.
2: Yeah. It's right
0: now. We'll Absolutely. put a link to your website, your book, and your Twitter handle in the show notes. I want to thank you for being thank here. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for doing what you I do, I had man. so much fun talking to you, about. thank awesome. you guys for Likewise. having Likewise. I feel
1: like we could go on another appreciate hour. I appreciate you guys. Yeah. I'll come back anytime you guys want me. i love that. Awesome. Thanks All for right, me. y'all. Love people,
0: use things. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Patrons. Thank you. Thanks for the support. Bye.
2: The minimalist.